Welcome back to Driven Minds. My name is Gigi and this is a Type 7 podcast. So a small plea before we start. I am on my knees right now. You just can't see it. Please subscribe to the podcast on whatever app you're listening on. And if you like it, give us a rating. It really does help us out and ensures we can keep this machine well-oiled because it takes a village. Today, we're expanding our minds with Rick Doblin, a pioneer of psychedelic therapy. He started the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, otherwise known as MAPS, in 1986. It is a nonprofit organization working to raise awareness and understanding around psychedelics. So Rick is highly accomplished in his field. On top of his psychology degree, he has a PhD in public policy from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. And his gripping TED Talk has been seen over 4 million times. So ever since I saw Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas when I was like 14 years old, which was probably too young, I've been wary of psychedelics because there's this scene where Johnny Depp is tripping on acid and using a fly swatter to swing at imaginary bats. And I just remember thinking, why would anyone put themselves in that kind of situation? But my curiosity peaked when an older, wiser friend of mine, a Silicon Valley exec, actually, who literally is the last person I ever thought would do MDMA therapy, did MDMA therapy. And she said it gave her a kind of new lens through which to see her problems. So now I was curious and I read Michael Pollan's book called How to Change Your Mind, And he speaks about Rick Doblin and his lifelong mission to essentially convince the FDA that psychedelic therapy is highly effective and how each day that passes is a day wasted. Now, when I say psychedelic therapy, I am not talking about the time you took Molly in a club or dropped acid and talked to the trees butt naked in a poncho. This episode is about using psychedelics for medicinal therapeutic purposes to treat conditions that traditional pharmaceuticals are not always able to do. So imagine a typical therapy scenario, except instead of your 45-minute session, it's eight hours and you're given one strong, hefty dose of a psychotropic. You're wearing a sleeping mask, lying down, listening to music, and talking through what is coming up for you. And the drug, from what I understand, because I've never done this kind of therapy before, is helping you process whatever shit you have to work out. So without further ado, buckle up and get ready for one hell of a trip with Rick Doblin. So we have a whole thing at MAPS called smokable tasks. So people can get high at work if it enhances their performance. So we just did that the other night to like two or three in the morning, <laughs> strategizing. I love it. I love it. Jesus, where can I submit my, my application? This is my kind of job. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, between that and just even just following your work and your research and MAPS, I mean... You are truly the Brad Pitt of mental health for me. So this is so surreal for me. (laughs) 
what's funny is when we were sending equipment to you, I actually got very wound up to see that you live in Belmont, Massachusetts, which is the same town as my former psychiatric hospital, McLean. Oh my gosh, you were there. I was. And it was also one of the many reasons I was excited to talk to you because I've had really bad OCD and anxiety for 20 years. And I took SSRIs and stimulants from age nine until I went to college, went off all of it because not only was it not helping me, but it totally stripped me of my personality, had no therapeutic effect, hated taking it daily. And when I applied to McLean, I told them that I wanted to do the OCD program, but that I wasn't open to taking any medication. And they said, fine, but if the therapist decided that I needed it and I refused to take the meds, I'd be asked to leave. Mm. And I never ended up taking the medication there because I believe that if my mind was capable of creating these issues in the first place, it was equally capable of beating them. Mm. Yeah, so although I know they're helpful for some people, it really does blow my mind that this limited amount of prescription drugs are still considered the gold standard for treatment. So... I'm so excited at the prospect of an alternative and don't take this the wrong way, but you are truly the man I've been waiting for my entire life. Oh my God. Well, I'll take that uh, any way you mean it. (laughs) So was it helpful for you though to be there? It was really the CBT and DBT program that Mm -hmm. helped me the most. And yeah, I did the maximum time of three months. So I I know Belmont very, very well. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Well, I used to go jogging with my dog around the woods around uh, McLean Hospital. So you've spent your entire life studying the power of therapeutic psychedelics and trying to get FDA approval. What was the prevailing ideology around psychedelics when you first tried them yourself? I first tried psychedelics in 1971, and that was LSD and mescaline. And (laughs) up to that point, I had believed the fact that if you took LSD six times, you were certifiably insane. You believe that? That's what I was told. And then I also believed that LSD causes chromosome damage and that you would have deformed children. And I also believed that it was just a complete delusion, a hallucination. It was fake. So I I bought into all the propaganda. But what changed my mind, so I was studying Russian. And in my senior year, a friend of mine gave me a book to read in my Russian class. And I loved it. And I handed it back to him. And he said that partially it was written while the author was under the influence of LSD. I said, that's impossible. You know, nobody can produce anything good under the influence of LSD. He said, no, check it out. And it turned out to be true. And it was Ken Kesey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Wild. I had no idea. And it was that book that made me think if somebody could write something like this under the influence of LSD, then maybe everything I've been told was wrong. And so when I first started trying LSD, I was just, well, we talked earlier about bar and bat mitzvahs. So my bar mitzvah had failed to turn me into a man. So I just thought it was going to be this deeply spiritual experience. I was going to be touched by God. Something would change. I'd go from a boy to a man. and Somehow it would be this transformative situation. And I remember waking up the morning after my bar mitzvah and just thinking, I'm the same. There's nothing different. Mm -hmm. And then I just thought, okay, God must be busy, you know, and um, a lot of people got bar and bat misfit and I'll wait another day. And then every morning I'd wake up like that. And then finally a week comes by 
and more people are getting burned by misfit. And I just felt I fell off the list. So when I took LSD for the first time, I thought this is what my bar mitzvah should have been Uh. because it was helping me ask these existential questions like, who am I? Where do I fit in? What's beyond my ego? How do I let go? You know, how do I confront these emotions? How do I have courage to question the unknown? Somebody I didn't know came by college and uh, he had half a pound of mescaline, which is pretty amazing. So I bought all of it and friends and I Investment. Yes, it was an investment in consciousness. Well, what do you go to college for if not to explore your mind? Amen. At what point did the fear dissipate that six, seven times, whatever you were told, the amount of times that your brain would turn to mush if you took LSD? When did that dissipate? Well, once I read the book, you know, One for Other Cuckoo's Nest, I realized I'd been sold a bill of goods and it was just in service of the drug war and it wasn't really accurate. So... Mm -hmm. From there, I just started questioning everything. But but just to show you how these myths live, now let's flash forward to um, 1989, and I'm at the Kennedy School getting my master's degree, and I'm in a class with this woman who says that she had an um, interesting mushroom experience in college, and she wanted to talk to me about it. We were in the same class together, so... We went out to lunch, and during the lunch, she said, I would never, ever have a long-term relationship with anybody like you. And I'm like, well, why is that? And she said, because your chromosomes are all screwed up because you've done LSD so much. You know, if we were to have children, they'd be like a giraffe or something. Back to the historical part in the history of this, what shocked me was between 1950 and 1965, it was not unusual to see psychedelics being used to treat mental struggles, right? I mean, I've read that there were more than a thousand clinical papers written, something like 40,000 research participants took place in studies. And the American Psychiatric Association had meetings centered around LSD. And on top of all of this, a lot of this research was government funded. Yeah. How did we go from there to this cultural and political U-turn against psychedelics? It went from being a tool of psychotherapy or psychology here at Harvard or a tool for the military looking for mind control things out at Stanford. And then it merged into more popular use, particularly among young people. And then it got to be very inspirational because when you break down the sense of you are your ego into something larger, and then you see, wow, I'm part of something much bigger. Why? You know, do I think that somebody who has a skin color that's different from me is fundamentally different or somebody with a different religion or somebody Mm -hmm. from a different country or even some animals, you know, that that we're all part of this one big system of life on earth. And when you have that identification, Mm -hmm. then it has political implications. Right. So we see the rise of um, the environmental movement, the women's movement, the anti-Vietnam War movement often fueled by young people doing these psychedelics. And so the narrative that many people have is psychedelics went wrong in the 60s and so many people were unprepared or went crazy or stared at the sun and went blind, although that was a myth. It was psychedelics going wrong that caused the backlash. But what I think actually happened, and to answer your question, is that psychedelics went right. And then people would have these other kinds of experiences, and then they would get motivated to make the world a better place 
in the different ways that they thought. And so the psychedelics got connected up with the counterculture, with the anti-war movement, with challenges of the status quo. And around, I think it was 1979, that John Ehrlichman, who had been Nixon's domestic policy advisor, said that the two main enemies that the Nixon White House had were the civil rights movement and the hippies. And since Mm -hmm. they couldn't really outlaw protesting, since this was America, they could, though, outlaw the drugs that these groups were using and then try to bust up their meetings, arrest the leaders, put them in jail. And that's how psychedelics in the Controlled Substances Act of 1970 became completely illegal. And not only did the government criminalize non-medical, non-scientific use, but they also stopped the research. So actually, 1966 was the last time the National Institute of Mental Health funded psychedelic research. So the backlash, not to say that bad things didn't happen, but I think the real answer to the backlash was because good things happened and people started challenging the status quo. And now when we look 50 years later, there's kind of a consensus that the Vietnam War was a mistake, Mm -hmm. that women deserve more rights than they've had before in the past, that the environmental movement is something super important, and that we see mindfulness and meditation. The Beatles brought in Maharishi Mahesh Yogi that that a lot of the things that the hippies were doing were really just half a century ahead of their time. Right. Rather than the wrong direction. So now now you're full on the the wagon, but it took you a minute to get into psychedelics, right? Because you were in Florida in your late 20s, which was the early 80s, doing something in housing? Well, I, I went to Florida to college in 1971 when I started college. So when I get there, It turned out they had all-night parties with psychedelics till the sunrise. Oh, my God. So I um, didn't realize till I got to new college that not only did they have these all-night dance parties with psychedelics, but the swimming pool had turned into a nudist colony. Oh, my gosh. And and it felt like here was an oasis of sanity in a crazy world. They were trying to bring the energies of sex and drugs from the underground up into the surface. Then you can kind of deal with it better. And at one point, my girlfriend was uh, the nude lifeguard. Oh, my God. So I would like, I'm drowning. I'm drowning. Save me. (laughs) Real life Baywatch. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. (laughs) And so it just really did feel like this oasis of sanity trying to find it. It was an experimental college, and it's the Honors College of the state of Florida. I was the first person to get arrested for swimming naked in the pool after they merged with the state and they criminalized nudity at the pool. So that was a bummer. But congratulations. <laughs> that is a badge of honor that I would want to wear. Yeah. Well, of course, I wasn't wearing anything. But... <laughs> Touche. <laughs> it was a great school, but I dropped out. After I talked to the guidance counselor, I realized that I was unbalanced, you know, emotionally and spiritually underdeveloped, intellectually overdeveloped. And I reflected that out in the world. The world was, as a whole, we have expanded our capacity. It's a miracle that what we're doing right now, I mean, we're in different locations. We're doing this electronically with all this incredible equipment. Stuff's going up and down to satellites. Total fucking trip. I'm with you. It's a miracle. And yet, you know, we have nuclear weapons, we have fossil fuels, we have all sorts of things. So we don't have the emotional, spiritual capacity to deal with the technology that we've developed. So that's where I dropped out of college for 10 years. And that's when I got into construction to get grounded. Literally. Because I was so up in my head. And so it took 10 years of building things, tripping every now and again, 
just to build up my strength, to have relationships, have emotions, try to you know grow in many different ways. So what made you ditch the job after those 10 years to get into therapeutic psychedelics? Well, I always knew that I was going to be a psychedelic therapist. So when I was 18 and I you know, read Stan Groff's book, I was like, this is it. I'm going to be a psychedelic therapist. I need my own psychedelic therapy. I want to try to bring back the research. But I felt I wasn't prepared. So that was this 10 years of building things and tripping now and again was to get me prepared. And finally, I felt at age 28, okay, I'm ready to go back to college. So I finally figured that I could put psychedelics first. I could do it as my forefront. And then I went back for another month-long workshop in 1984. And it was about people who had difficult experiences. And and so I came home from that month-long training, and I was still planning to be a, a therapist, psychedelic therapist. And then a friend of mine, I was just home a few days, and he said he and his girlfriend had done this MDMA together. I'd never met his girlfriend. And during this experience, she'd remembered having been raped and almost killed. And it was so profound, so scary. She sort of partitioned it off from her life, and she found a new balance, but it came to the surface. And she'd been in and out of mental institutions before and suicidal before from all of this. And so she was so disturbed that she checked herself into a mental institution so she wouldn't hurt herself. Mm. And she got out after five or six days with the same old pills and the same, and she was even worse off because she knew that psychiatry had nothing for her. So my friend said, would you work with her? And I said, I don't know that I'm qualified, you know, particularly if she's suicidal. I, I just came back from this workshop. I've never really worked with anybody like this. And, but I finally realized she had no other place to go. So I agreed to talk to her. And during our conversation, I said, if you promise not to kill yourself when we work together, I will work with you. And I can get some girlfriends and we can create the safe spots around you. And after that, it worked. It really helped her through her PTSD. And then she later became a therapist. And now she's one of our lead therapists training other therapists. Such a beautiful story. I want to touch on MAPS, which you founded in 1986. Yeah. Can you give us the cliff notes as to what MAPS is and what kinds of psychedelics you work with there? So MAPS is Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And I learned about MDMA in 82. You know, I did the first work with a PTSD patient in 84, but it was clear that it had escaped from therapy and it was becoming ecstasy. So it was doomed. The legal status of it was doomed. This was Nancy Reagan, Ronald Reagan, just say no, escalation of the drug war. Mm -hmm. So what I did and others in this underground psychedelic therapy community, we gathered together and tried to figure out how to protect MDMA as a therapy drug once the DEA tried to crack down, which they did in 84. And so I went to Washington. We had these hearings. We actually won the hearings. The judge said MDMA should be Schedule 3, meaning legal for medical use, but illegal for recreational use. And the DEA rejected the recommendation and criminalized it. And then we won twice in the appeals court, and eventually we lost. And so MAPS was created in 86 as a nonprofit psychedelic pharmaceutical company. Now it's 35 years later. We've raised $130 million in grants and donations. We have 145 people now working for us. And we're in phase three of research with MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD. We also just got $12.9 million grant from the state of Michigan 
for a marijuana PTSD study in 320 veterans. We've done some observational studies of Ibogaine. We started LSD research for the first time in 30 years in Switzerland. And we're interested in the range of psychedelics, but because it's so expensive to take things through the FDA, our main focus is MDMA and MDMA for PTSD. But we've done studies MDMA for social anxiety and autistic adults. And so there's incredible number. And couples therapy, it's great for. Well, you have a very eager patient <laughs> over here. Yeah, we have worked with some people with OCD as well. But when you say patient, are you done with the OCD or? Yeah, I mean, back when my OCD was really bad, I'd feel compelled to touch things a certain way a certain amount of times before I could leave the house. And I felt like if I didn't do it, my parents would die, which I technically knew wouldn't happen. But OCD is this shit wormhole that you end up doing the whole goddamn ritual for that 1% just in case Mm -hmm. chance. And I had a lot of rituals and anxieties around doing things just right and perfectionism. Like I would agonize over decision-making, whether I should take the 9.30 a.m. flight or the 11 a.m. flight when reality didn't fucking matter. But I just couldn't decide. And I'd like pull people and I was paralyzed by this need for choosing the perfect thing. And I was just exhausted and frustrated at myself for needing to do all this dumb shit. And while a lot of that's alleviated, there is still residue of that, you know, which I was not able to do through DBT and CBT. So there's just leftover parts that I know so deep in me can be solved with some sort of psilocybin or MDMA treatment. And I've always wanted to try it, but Googling psilocybin treatment or MDMA treatment doesn't yield the most fruitful Google search results, shall we say. So I've always wanted to be part of some sort of clinical trial. I think there is healing awaiting you. I think so too. You know, we did do some work with OCD people informally over years and I've seen people get better a lot. Things where our mind is sort of trapping us and it's really hard for therapies Mm -hmm. to work. And that's where these drugs help so much. The psychedelic medicines can get us out of these patterns of dead-end cycles over and over, anxiety, depression, OCD. Hold on. Help is coming. Oh my God. I told you you're the man I've been waiting (laughs) for. I meant it. But 30 years also is a long time to hear no and trying to get FDA approval. I mean, it's like knocking your head against the same wall. The thing is that what sustained me is that it wasn't always hearing no. I, I wouldn't hear yes, but I would hear a little bit of like, well, maybe, or I can give this one inch you're asking for approval. But I had to learn how to be happy about incremental progress. So it's been a slow and gradual process. The no's were from when MDMA, we lost the hearing. Then 1986, when I started MAPS, and then we had five protocols from Harvard and others, all rejected by the FDA. And it wasn't until 1992 when the FDA finally said yes to our first MDMA study. So it's been a a gradual progression of increasing number of yeses since 1992. And the final yes, we think, will be yes, approval for prescription use of MDMA-assisted therapy, limited to trained professionals working under supervision with a doctor who doesn't need to be there, but does the initial screening and then is on call during the MDMA session. Yeah, I read that unbelievable study about the octopus. Oh, yes. When you give MDMA to an octopus, this asocial animal 
is all of a sudden social and hangs out with other octopi. Yeah, yeah, we supplied the MDMA to that. I'm really proud to say. Mm. Yeah, it showed that these asocial animals diverged from humans around 600 million years ago, something like that, but they still process serotonin. And the MDMA really had a profound influence on them. So just to say that if we succeed in adults, which are 18 or over with PTSD, the FDA is requiring us to work with children, with adolescents, 12 to 17-year-olds with PTSD. If that works, then we have to do 7 to 11-year-olds. And what makes me think it will work for them is the octopus study, is that it's pre-verbal. This pro-social effect is pre-verbal, deep in our evolutionary history. And I think it will be very profoundly healing. And what we want to do is try to treat people closer to the trauma. Right. So if kids are traumatized with domestic violence or sexual abuse or whatever, why wait for them to go through adolescence horribly warped by the trauma that they've experienced? Right. You know, what's funny though, is I feel like we all should be doing these psychotropic therapy sessions because someone's trauma might not be what we conventionally think of as trauma necessarily, like combat or sexual abuse or death. But if you're a person living in 2021, you have some sort of trauma. Do you feel this at all? Oh my God. If you just read the newspaper and look at the way the world is going. Heroin. Yeah, and if you realize too that we're fundamentally connected to everybody and all life, and all the the enormous amount of extinction that's going on. Yeah, just being sensitive at all, it's traumatic. And whether we'll have the death of American democracy is more possible now than ever before. More so even, Mm -hmm. I think, potentially than the Civil War. I mean, so it's very frightening times. And so what our goal is, is mass mental health. That's the solution. Love it. And we've, we've got two ways to accomplish that. One is drug development through making MDMA into a medicine. The other is drug policy reform to make it so people can access psychedelics legally on their own for personal growth, for fun, for parties, for spiritual orientation, for sort of like a vision quest, what they want to do with their lives. So the the long-term goal is millions and billions of people to have this sense. And, And I'll say that we have this from astronauts who talk about the overview effect of being up in space and seeing the earth as a whole thing and how much that spiritualized them. And so what we um, cannot do is uh, shoot everybody up into space, but we can easily give them all LSD or MDMA. Easy remedy. Way less expensive. You know, we just get uh, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos to say, hey, I'm going to fund having one experience for yeah. everybody to figure out where they are in the universe. And that, that probably would do a lot more good than all the money they're spending to go up in space. So if I were to try out psychedelic therapy, what drug would I take and what would the experience be like? Well, in general, MDMA is the most gentle of all the psychedelics. Really? More than psilocybin? Way more than psilocybin. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, because psilocybin is like LSD is like a um, ego dissolving. And there's that fear of losing your sense of orientation. You know, who am I? Everything is oriented towards who am I? And then the I starts dissipating. You know, if you can let go and, and be open to it, then you can get this deeper sense. You're, you are part of this historical evolution. You're part of the life force itself. And that, you know, where you happen to be born and those specifics are less important than all the general stuff about who you are. MDMA 
doesn't dissolve your ego. It, it sort of makes you stronger in who you are. Mm. You get self-acceptance, self-love. So the perfectionism that you talked about with OCD, you can feel like mm-hmm. I don't have to be perfect and you can love yourself for who you are. But I think in general, in the future, as we ease people into this, they'd start with MDMA and then go on to a more classic psychedelic. Or, or we see now there's about seven or 800 ketamine clinics in America. Yeah. So a lot of people are starting with ketamine which is um, dissociative anesthetic, but one-tenth the dose, it's more or less a psychedelic. Mm -hmm. So you can have all these experiences like that. And interestingly enough, ketamine as an anesthetic is preferred more for children than adults right now because adults, when you get this amount of ketamine for an operation, they don't prepare you that as you're coming down and your body metabolizes it, you pass through the psychedelic phase. No, So they call it the emergent phenomena. They don't prepare you at all. And so you go through this difficult phase after you've had an operation and it's difficult for a lot of people, but kids somehow live more in this world of imagination. They don't have quite the distinction between what's inside, what's outside, what's imagination, what's a story. And so they're more or less fine with this kind of psychedelic phase as they come off the ketamine. So yeah, ketamine as an anesthetic is very well indicated for children. That is so fascinating. And by the way, part of the reason why I want to take these psychotropic drugs, because I want to revert into my kid mind Mm. of caring less, being one with nature, being off my phone more, you know, and I I crave to have my child's mind back. The fear was minimal at most. Well, and in fact, what was shown when MDMA was given to uh, mice, and this is also true for the octopus, that in your childhood, there's what are called um, critical periods of brain development. And so we know that little kids can learn languages a lot easier than adults can learn languages. Mm -hmm. So there's social reward learning where you learn about being in groups. And so why it worked in octopuses, and also we've seen this in mice, is that MDMA opens up these critical periods where you can learn and take in new information. And it also promotes what we talk about as neuroplasticity, Mm. that you grow new neural connections from psilocybin or MDMA, things like that. And that you're able to reroute how you think about certain things so that you could imagine how astonishing it would be that you could have one experience that lasts for a few hours, but it can change the rest of your life. Well, that's what happens with trauma. Trauma is one experience sometimes changes the rest of your life, but MDMA can change it back and you build new pathways. It's it's amazing. So can LSD or Ibogaine or psilocybin so that there is this opportunity to rewire your brain and to be more childlike in certain ways to have these periods of um, social reward learning open up again. What stops me a bit is that I feel a lot of people have some sort of personal drug experience gone wrong. I'm still affected by this one time I smoked way too much weed and felt such extreme body-consuming paranoia and fear. As bursting out of my skin as I am to try psychedelic therapy, the image of me in fetal position on a deformed beige futon in West Hollywood is seared into my memory. Mm Yeah. So... How present am I during these therapies and to what extent do I have my faculties? Well, you're very present. And in fact, let's say that you were to do MDMA therapy. You might very well. We don't know you know, where you would go or what you do. And in fact, we basically open it up and say, whatever happens, 
respond to whatever is emerging. But you might go back to that marijuana experience mm. and you might recall it. So we've worked with people that have difficult LSD trips decades before, and then MDMA helps them work through it. Whereas before they weren't able to do that. So wow. you might be able to go back and you could metabolize the fear in a way. You can metabolize the difficulties from before and then look at it in a new way. So we would expect that at some point that might actually emerge. And if we were to talk about ahead of time that this was one of the things that happened to you in the past, you might in your mind say, yeah, sometime during my MDMA experience, I want to talk about my marijuana experience. Got it. So just the fact that you got stuck at that point doesn't mean that you can't get past it however many years later, or that let's say you did MDMA therapy and you discussed that, worked through it, felt that fear. Then the very next time you try marijuana, it might not be like that at all. So my understanding is it's three sessions, right? It's three sessions and then there's therapy in between. And then after those three sessions, that's kind of all you need more or less, theoretically. Well, for most people, I mean, what we have is that in severe PTSD, people had PTSD an average of 15 years, one third had over 20 years. It's three MDMA sessions, one month apart, but it's combined with 12 90-minute non-drug psychotherapy sessions. Mm-hmm. So three before the first MDMA session for preparation, three after each MDMA session for integration takes about three and a half months. And that's the standard treatment. About what you said regarding the experiences that would come up, there are ways for experiences or trauma to inadvertently come up when you're having a psychedelic experience and it kind of turns therapeutic. Like mm-hmm. you take ecstasy to club and all of a sudden you're confronted by a surge of trauma that you weren't expecting. Yeah. You were just expecting to like see pink light everywhere <laughs> and glow. And Yeah. Yeah. Well, 15 years ago, it was about two women uh, approached us in the same week with similar stories, but different <laughs> outcomes. Both of them had taken MDMA at a rave seeking just a party. And both of them had <laughs> prior sexual abuse come up. And one of them said she was with a bunch of friends and she just felt like they only wanted to party. And so she didn't feel she could talk to them about what she was feeling. So she tried to stuff her feelings down and she said that made her worse for months afterwards. And then the other woman said she was at a party, same story, but she was with a girlfriend. They went off to the corner. She's talked for about an hour about what her trauma was and kind of worked through a lot of it. And then they went back to the party. Right. And now she thinks MDMA could be good for PTSD. So it's this question of whether you're open to it and willing to explore it or whether you try to suppress it. And what we say is that difficult is not the same as bad. So a difficult trip is where it's material that is difficult, but you're willing to wrestle with it, to work with it, to let out the feelings. Bad is when you try to suppress it. And that's where you can end up worse off for a long time to come. Chemically speaking, how do the drugs you use in therapy compare to those you'd buy from a man named Sparkle at 4 a.m. in the morning? (laughs) Well, it depends a lot on um, Sparkle, let's say, (laughs) because sometimes Sparkle can have very pure MDMA. There's a bunch of people that do care about getting pure drugs out for people, and they're doing it not just to make money, but for the experiences that people have. But in general, when ecstasy first came out in the 80s, MDMA was already a therapy drug. So people often don't know that MDMA was a therapy drug under the codename Adam from the middle 70s mm-hmm. to the early 80s that escaped from that and became the party drug ecstasy. 
and that there was just a lot of people at that time who were just exploring it. But ecstasy at that time was very pure. And then over time, dealers started adulterating it with different things. And then after a while, people got so frustrated that ecstasy didn't somehow or other automatically mean it was pure. They came up with the new name Molly for molecule. Oh, is that the... Yeah. Yeah. So that's how you get Molly. And so Molly was supposed to be pure while ecstasy was already being way adulterated. So you can never tell. But there's for your listeners, there's one place in America that has a DEA license that it can accept anonymous samples and analyze drugs. It's called the Drug Detection Lab. So if you've got something and you don't know what's in it, you can check out Drug Detection Lab or go to Arrowids, the ecstasy pill testing program. It costs about 125 bucks or something like that, but you can find out what's really in whatever these pills are. What drives you? The fear of another Holocaust, the fear of blowing up the world, the the craziness of humanity. So I felt that fear has been my main motivating, but it's fear, not overwhelming fear, because otherwise I would be paralyzed. Mm. But it's fear that in my privilege and in my safety, that there are people being murdered and killed and tortured and that there's destruction of the planet and, and all of this is happening. And I feel connected to it. So it's that fear of the worst of humanity rising to the surface. And we see a lot of that now in America. America is broken. Partisanship and more us and them than ever before. There's more rise of violence and hatred. So it's it's a very perilous time. And I could never really understand before how did Hitler arise in Germany. Now I understand better when I see how rationality doesn't matter and that you have the big lie and people will buy into it. Sometimes the more outrageous it is. So I think the work that we're doing to try to help people manage fear and anxiety and the sense of separateness is more essential now than it's ever before. And at times I felt like the psychedelic renaissance has come too late. Mm. That, you know, I don't know if we can help enough people to be more rational or to be more loving. Rick, thank you so much for your time. Great. my friends was Rick Dublin. You can support him by going to maps.org and making a donation. You can follow Rick on Instagram at Rick Doblin Maps. You can follow me at Gillian Sigansky. Really want to hammer this in, guys. Give us a rating if you can. Subscribe to the podcast. Throw us a bone. Throw us a fucking bone. If you need me, I'll be donning my monocle and pouring over the latest in psychedelic research. Until next time.